Hi, and welcome back. I'm Patrick Polk, and you're listening to The Rules of Investing. The Rules of Investing gets inside the minds of leading investors, economists, and industry experts, and it's brought to you by Livewire Markets. Today's guest is Alex Weislitz, founder and chairman of Thorny Investment Group. Weislitz got his start in the investment industry, working on Wall Street in the 80s, eventually finding himself working for Australia's first billionaire, Robert Holmes Accord. When he returned to Australia, he worked with Richard Pratt, who built Fizzy from two small Melbourne factories to the packaging giant we know today. In 91, he founded Thorny Investment Group, and after many years of hard work and compounding, he's now one of Australia's richest 100 people. In 2013, Thorny took over management of a small ASX-listed investment company, recapitalising it and creating Thorny opportunities in the process, which was the first time the public had the opportunity to access Alex's stock-picking abilities. In this episode, we hear about the formative years of his investment career and how he developed the strategy that's been so successful. He tells us how he's taking a picks and shovels approach to investing in digital currencies. And finally, we hear the thesis for two Aussie small caps, an undervalued turnaround and an innovative company with a large addressable market. If you're an Apple Podcasts or Spotify user, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss an episode. Or if you're a Livewire subscriber, hit the follow button at the bottom of the wire to be notified whenever I post content. Not a Livewire subscriber yet? Just head on over to livewiremarkets.com. It's free, easy to register, and you'll get access to insights from the leading investment minds in the country. Well, that's it for now. I hope you enjoy the show. Alex, welcome to the show. Good to be speaking with you again. Yeah, thanks so much. It's been a big year, uh, I think, since we spoke uh, about that long ago. Yeah, it has been a little while. I'm curious to get a bit of an update on how things are going for you and, and hear what's happening at Thorny. Um, but I wanted to start, first of all, uh, just with a bit of background. Um, you have some pretty interesting extracurricular activities. Um, they include being a company director for Vizzy and Pratt, uh, your vice president of the Collingwood Football Club, uh, sit on the International Advisory Board for the MBA qualification, and you've even tried your hand as a movie producer. Could you tell me which out of these things has been the most valuable and interesting for you? And is there anything that you wouldn't do again? Uh, well, uh, yes, it's... Uh, look, I believe that uh, you've got to have a full and eclectic life and uh, active. And I also believe from different industries and different experiences, you're always learning and you can cross-pollinate from them and that... Uh, turns out to be valuable, not only in your life skills, but as it translates to business. So I used to be on the board of the Vizzy and uh, Pratt companies when I was actively engaged, not, not anymore. And I've been on the board of the, of the zoos, uh, Zoos Victoria as well. Um, Collingwood Football Club was a fabulous experience for me. Um, I was a lifelong fan and got to uh, work my way up to sort of standing on the beer cans as a little kid at the front fence and, uh, 
being shouted over to eventually becoming, uh, I think, the longest-serving vice president of the of the club, and uh, you know, in a sense, we engineered a turnaround in the early days when Collingwood was in a lot of trouble. That was challenging but fun, and just being around the players, and you know, I'm a fan. At the end of the day, was a pretty exciting experience uh, for us. Um, football clubs are, are small but complicated uh, businesses, and always in the media. So. Uh, fortunately, I had Eddie Maguire there at the helm when I was there, so I managed to avoid most of the media, but it was still a good learning experience. Um, and the other, uh, making the films was actually uh, a pretty good fun. It was kind of an uh, early adventure. It was a joint venture with um, Village Roadshow at the time uh, and supporting Australian films and initiative. Um, actually, but what I did realise that it's just like any other business. It's got its... Uh, complications, it's a series of contracts, you've got to execute on the contracts. Uh, when you're actually standing around on the film set and you're not the star, you're just on the sideline, there's a lot of wasted time and a lot of repeated endeavours. So, uh, you know, you wonder about efficiencies and how to improve it. And I'm sure there's technology now that helps you a lot there. But uh, you realise despite the bit of glamour, it's just another business, uh, yet an exciting business uh, from the outside another business on the inside. So uh, you have to be passionate about it, obviously, to continue. Why don't you tell me about the origins of Thorny? Where did the name come from? Why did you decide to start it? And what were the early days like? Well, I'd, uh, I'd studied law and commerce in uh, Melbourne, but was keen to head overseas, which I did, and eventually found myself in New York, um, not wanting to work as a lawyer and study again to get the qualifications there, I found myself on Wall Street with an investment house called Prudential uh, Beige, and I was in the international department, which housed a lot of uh, foreigners, which was um, quite stimulating to meet people from all over the world. And we uh, had a broad introduction to the sort of financial markets and financial products, and I realized then that I wanted to be more on the buy side than the sell side and was lucky enough to join up and co-open the office of Robert Holmes Accord, who was Australia's first billionaire and a kind of a genius investor who um, I was somewhat in awe of, but managed to learn a lot from him. And I guess getting involved in the investment world on the buy side and, and we had a small team, so I was even though a junior member, I got exposed to a lot of uh, different skills and opportunities. I think that whet my appetite to continue in the investment world, not go back to law to practice as a uh, solicitor. And so when I did return to Australia um, and after, after my six years in New York, I really wanted to find an entrepreneurial environment in my hometown uh, which I did with Richard Pratt and the Visi Group. They were probably the most uh, entrepreneurial industrial company um, in Australia, and perhaps uh, still are one of the um, one of the great Australian companies and success stories. Uh, now run by Anthony Pratt, uh, Richard's son. Uh, but within that, I wanted to um, uh, spread my own wings as well and continue not so much down the manufacturing path, even though they were doing great things, but to go into the investment world. And I uh, realized that um, after seeing the energy and momentum and 
sort of aggressiveness and competitiveness of the New York markets and the US markets that um, that kind of environment was lacking for the most part in Australia at the smaller end of the market. Sure, Holmes Accord was there and other people like uh, Alan Bond and uh, obviously Rupert Murdoch at the bigger end, but in uh, what I realized was in the micro cap space and in the small cap sector, there was not a lot going on. They were relatively unknown, sleepy companies. Sometimes they had uh, board members who were just there as more like rubber stamps or filling in the numbers. And they were largely undiscovered. And I didn't have much capital to start with, uh, but I wanted to be a thorn in the side, if you like, of those companies that were sleepy. And that was part of the origin of coming up with the name Thorny. I've heard that there were quite a few years in the early days where you were producing returns of 100% or more per annum. First of all, is that right? And secondly, if so, how do you think you were achieving those kinds of returns? Well, uh, that is right. And uh, as I said, we start, I started off with a small amount of capital, just over a million dollars. And in fact, in the first year, uh, turned that one million into four million dollars. And that was actually a fair bit of trading activity and it was um, uh, active times there and I was, uh, I guess, uh, I, was, I was okay at it to achieve those, those results. But I wasn't really interested primarily in being a trader, although I, uh, obviously we were good at it. I was more interested in building a stake or stakes in companies where uh, I could engage with the management fundamentally or the boards or the decision makers around the company and be part of really what was uh, making the company the business tick. I was interested in the business, uh, whether it was a, through a public company or through a private company for that matter. And um, so obviously with a small amount of money, I was focused on those uh, micro caps and taking a position in those and engaging with the um, the principles, for the most part, it was well received, even though I was a young guy. Uh, people liked the fact that I'd spent a few years in New York. I'd uh, had some experience through Visi, uh, through understanding business organizations. And, uh, you know, that was a pretty hardcore uh, run business. And just talking to them about how to uh, scale up and how to do things with a, a bigger picture in mind. Mainly, I got um, pretty good responses and trying to help them not only improve their capital structure, but actually the decision about how they expand and where they expand, getting better board members uh, on board, introducing them to, uh, you know, my few connections in the brokerage world and the investment houses to get behind them, uh, achieved some 100% um, plus performances in those early years. So it was terrific and it was really exciting. And I realized that actually I love the engagement in, uh, in the variety of businesses. So I also decided I didn't want to become a super specialist. It didn't suit my personality because generally I'm a sort of curious person. And as I said earlier, I think you can cross pollinate from one business to another business and, and learn and improve. So I set myself the task of being a sort of a well-educated generalist and then reach out to specialists as needed for the particular nuances of those business. But taking the general business skills, which maybe account for 80% of any business, we're able to adapt that from one to the other. And 
targeted a lot of the, uh, as I said, the very small companies, but somewhat exciting companies or those that had uh, hidden assets such as real estate in them. And then if you turned over the real estate or sold them, you realized that the NTA was actually triple what was the stated NTA was because it hadn't been revalued for years. And suddenly the share price would explode on the upside because uh, investors realized that uh, there was a lot more worth in those companies. So, or selling off a, a division that was uh, poorly operating. And, and those situations still uh, occur today, you know, what I would call orphan assets uh, in, in businesses. I mean, recently, and Top as an investor in uh, ACM, the media group that uh, myself and Anthony Catalano bought out of Fairfax uh, just over two years ago. So that was a business at one stage that was valued, I think, at four or five billion dollars. And, uh, you know, we, we paid just uh, over a hundred million dollars for uh, the assets, obviously a decla declining newspaper audience, but um, still many assets in there. And, and in fact, we got a lot of real estate as part of the deal. And it was a business that uh, had not had enough, I would say, love and attention and capital from, from the top down, but it was actually more of a funnel of its cash going up. So it was underinvested in, and uh, we've managed to turn that around uh, very nicely, despite bushfires and floods and the drought and obviously COVID. So the, the point is, and I found that still 20 or 30 years ago, and it still exists today, that there are uh, many parts of businesses that are not focused on. And it's quite hard, particularly for founders, to sell off what might have been sort of family assets or icon assets in the group. But actually, if you encourage and explain their rationale and their financial uh, integrity in terms of doing that on behalf of uh, in a public company for shareholders, you can find superior performance comes out. And that's very much what happened in those early years. We found a lot of those type of companies. You... Uh manage two different listed investment companies, TOP, Thorny Opportunities, and TEK, Thorny Technologies. Could you explain the difference between the two uh, in terms of their investment strategy? Yeah. Um, Top is the older company and it came very much out of a lot of what I just described there. It's looking for value. Uh, it's looking for fallen angels that may be uh, candidates for a turnaround and improvement. It's looking for companies that may have those um, assets that can be sold off to liberate the balance sheet and focus management on the core business. Um, those type of uh, value or turnaround or orphan asset situations was the main emphasis of um, that mandate, very much along the skills that we had within the, uh, the Thorny uh, group. And... Uh, uh, that, that's been where that uh, series of endeavors have been focused on. It's got about 130, 140 million of uh, assets there. It's a more concentrated kind of portfolio. Uh, and uh, over the last couple of years, of course, the uh, focus of investors very much been on the, the growth and disrupting uh, tech world. So value has been somewhat forgotten. But I always believe value comes through at a certain point in time. And we keep working those assets and we had a pretty good year last year. I think our NTA was after fees and so on was uh, above 10% before 
a record dividend and the share price I think moved about 15% to the upside. And we think there's a lot of unlocked potential in that portfolio, which we're working hard to um, to achieve that over the next uh, few years. So uh, we need to explain that narrative a bit better because relative to tech, it's been an underperformer, but in its own right, it's been okay. Yeah, well, I was actually going to ask you what you thought was the reason for the diverging returns on those two, but I think you've uh, you pretty well uh, addressed it there. Do you have yeah, any and, plans? Well, to, we oh, went. Sorry. We also went through a few thematics there, and I think uh, we were probably a little bit early. We've got some exposure in mining services and infrastructure services uh, with companies like uh, Austin. That uh, if you look, you'll see a new CEO has just been installed there. Mermaid Marine, which has moved to clean up its uh, its shipping fleet and rates are going up. Uh, Deck Mill, which has recapitalized to deal with the problem of the balance sheet from two failed contracts or bad contracts. Um, Southern Cross Electrical, good company, going well, not well known. I think we went a little bit early in that thematic, but we're pretty happy with the, uh, the infrastructure spend that's going on and the capital that's been raised in the mining sector or resources sector that those companies are well positioned to take advantage of uh, a lot of capital in the in the next period. So we're looking for those companies to perform. There has been a couple that uh, we've got wrong uh, that we're working through. One is uh, uh, Pala Pharmaceuticals, which is uh, legalized uh, opium to deal with uh, for pain medication. That's been a bit of a journey, but uh, it's one of the few companies left in the world that is fully um, licensed and has all the government protocols to operate in that space. So. That's uh, been streamlined. A lot of work is going on. Change of CEO uh, is happening. So we, whilst it's been a long journey and we're down on our money, we haven't given up completely on that one. Uh, and there's a few in that category as well. Murray River Organics, a uh, food group out of Mildura, also um, has a new leadership team. And uh, these turnarounds, they don't happen overnight. You know, you have to stay with them. Sometimes you have to invest more capital. Uh, to support the balance sheet on the journey. But as I said, some of our best successes at uh, Thorny over our 30 years have come from these type of situations. Uh, names that come to mind is uh, Hub, uh, the uh, investment uh, platform, uh, mainly for superannuation funds and so on, which is a, a huge success now, 1.7 billion probably market cap, uh, when we invested, it was maybe 20 or 30 or $40 million market cap with uh, bleeding money from divisions. Webjet, another company that was uh, turned around. Um, so we've, we've been involved, Money3 itself, which I, I think I mentioned is the largest position that uh, had to change its dynamic, had some problems. So we're used to those situations. They don't always go in the direction and the time frame that you'd like, but I think for the most part, they get there eventually. Uh, and so we'll stick with that thematic. And we think, as I said, there's a lot of potential, I believe, in the portfolio. That's why we've been conducting a buyback uh, in top over the last uh, year. But switching to tech, which uh, people have become, I get, think, a bit more excited about, that's, uh, that's had a terrific year and focus in the broad technology space, listed companies, uh, pre-IPO, earlier stage, um, in the life cycle of a tech company, uh, investing primarily in Australia, but uh, growing 
over the last couple of years as well in the USA and uh, out of Israel as well, where we have sort of strategic alliance partners. So the NTA of uh, tech was up uh, close to 50% for the year just passed and the share price, I think, moved up around 70-odd percent uh, during the year. So um, tech is not a dividend payer. Top is a dividend payer. Uh, and as I said, it's um, uh, it's been exciting. And again, we've taken the, the view of we're not going to focus as a specialist on one particular sector or vertical within technology. We'll play a broader range within the thematics that we are um, confident in, such as uh, fintech or ag tech or medical sector with devices or diagnostics, uh, logistics, things like that, that uh, we, we do have some working knowledge and that we can get expertise in um, as we need it. So that's been a, a lot of fun and we've had some um, uh, excellent successes there. I, I wish to some extent that we had a bigger pool of capital and hadn't had to sell out some of the earlier positions to 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 keep circulating money. And, and indeed, we just recently did a a small capital raising of uh, 25 uh, or $26 million to boost uh, the opportunities because our uh, pipeline and uh, of uh, deal flow is, is uh, very um, strong, very robust. In your private investment group, uh, Thorny Investments Group, I understand that you invest in some digital currencies. I'm curious, do you have any plans to carry that over into either of your listed vehicles? Well, in the technology company, um, again, we've been following the thematics. It's not so much that we've invested in the uh, currencies, but we are a believer in uh, blockchain technology, for example, which is, we think, going to be more and more a fundamental infrastructure of uh, transactions and so we're looking for really, if I go back to the early days of uh, Thorny, just to digress for a moment, we did a lot in the resources sector, not so much in going directly into exploration companies, occasionally yes, but more so in what I call the picks and shovel approaches. So we invested in the mining services company, the engineers, the construction, the equipment suppliers, labor force uh, supply and so on. So to some extent, we've taken the same approach because I don't know which currency is going to be a winner in the long term, really. And I don't want to be a speculator on behalf of other shareholders. So we've invested around the space in the picks and shovel equivalent. So in Thorny Technologies, we have an investment in a Australian-led company, but Canadian listed called Banksa, which is... Uh, um, uh, crypto exchange, if you like, and that's growing its transactional um, volumes quite successfully and dramatically off a small base. And that's been a, a good winner for uh, Thorny Technology, and we still have that position. That listed, we were in the pre-IPO, it listed, I think, in January this year of around a dollar Canadian, and it's trading, I think, at uh, $3 or thereabout, having been as high as uh, uh, six or seven dollars, I think. Uh, and so we think that's well positioned uh, to take advantage of the the growing awareness and the growing transactions that are happening in cryptocurrencies. Uh, in addition, for example, we've invested in some Bitcoin miners, 
Um, Cosmos is one that's, uh, that's going to list in the NASDAQ shortly. And another one uh, which we're very excited about uh, and is a good sized position in tech is a company called Iris Energy, uh, run by a couple of uh, brothers, uh, Australian guys, ex Macquarie people, and they're growing their um, exahash capacity and computer capacity enormously. And I would add on, on a green basis, in other words, their power source, which is a critical component of uh, Bitcoin mining, is from uh, hydroelectricity primarily, uh, and they're located primarily in uh, Canada in order to uh, take advantage of that. So uh, I think that company uh, uh, has shown enormous growth and with some of the disruptions in China into, the, into that sector, I think the, the more legitimate uh, Western world Bitcoin miners, I think, will get superior valuations. And uh, I think that company will probably um, publicly list in the next uh, 12 months. So we're looking forward to hopefully a very um, strong outcome from that investment in Thorny Technology. So again, uh, we like the growing awareness of cryptos. I, I don't want to say one crypto is going to be better than the other, but we do think that the space will become more popular, popular, more um, uh, utility in terms of transactions. And so we want to be in the, um, in the, in the infrastructure around it. You tend to take fairly large positions in relatively small companies. Do you ever worry about your ability to exit these positions if they start to perform poorly? And what's your kind of approach for dealing with those situations? Yeah, that's a good question and something that I've dealt with right from the earlier um, investment scenarios that we had that I was talking about right at the beginning of Thorny with those micro caps because we were, we, I would often buy 5, 10 or even 15 or 20% of those companies and, and there's, uh, you know, there, there's not much liquidity in, in them. So you have to really work to achieve an outcome uh, basically in two ways. You, the company grows and you support the growth and it becomes uh, more awareness and a broader shareholding base emerges and you can sell into that progressively. Uh, or uh, in in the uh, in our experience, and uh, fortunately for us, there's a lot of M and A transactions that emerge, and if you've got a substantial stake, you can be a key component in in the success or failure of an M and A transaction. And so, we've often leveraged our position to ensure an outcome in that regard. And actually, um, you know, we're 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 right now in an M and A cycle that's. Uh, you know, entering sort of turbo speed. And we've seen that at the top end with recently with bids for Sydney Airport and uh, Afterpay. And we've seen it at the uh, smaller end um, um, with companies like uh, Huon just recently, uh, last week having a bid and Empire, an IT services company having a bid, uh, both of them from overseas um, corporations. So I think we're entering a cycle of M&A transactions. So I'm hopeful that companies not only in the tech portfolio, but in the top portfolio in particular might be, um, uh, might be targeted. Now, is that the best outcome? And is uh, companies, uh, we don't want to sell too cheaply, obviously, and give up value. And uh, we don't want to sell at all if we can see, uh, you know, a path for many, many years of growth. But 
obviously, it's a nice thing to happen in a way because it uh, validates your um, your investment decision ultimately, and uh, you have optionality about uh, liquidity event if uh, if if you want that and and that performance. So, um, why is the M and A cycle so robust at the moment and likely to continue? Um, I think for two reasons. One is um, uh, money is cheap, interest rates are still low, despite the conversation about uh, inflation and whether rates will go up. And, and I do personally believe there is inflation in the system, and I do believe rates will go up at some point uh, in the not-too-distant future. But on the, at, at the same time, you've got massive government support going on and huge stimulus through infrastructure and other areas that uh, perhaps will just defer that for, for a little bit. But the result of that is that um, there is uh, uh, the ability to borrow uh, at relatively or historical kind of low costs. Um, share prices are high, so those with uh, many companies have got value in their script that they can go and use also for consideration. And there's plenty of uh, money on the sideline for investment. Private equity firms uh, out of the US, you've got all these SPACs that have got hundreds of billions of dollars actually to invest and they've got a limited time duration in which to do that. And actually retail has got a lot of money also uh, to invest. So um, the, the money the, uh, is awash in the system at the moment and that's finding a home in the stock market. And those that uh, companies that don't perform from a share price point of view for one reason or another, um, Albeit a, it might be a short-termism reason, which is you know a direct impact through COVID and the lockdowns, which, uh, uh, for example, in the top portfolio of a company AMA, which is in automotive smash repairs. Well, obviously, if cars are not on the road, they're not having the same number of uh, incidents, and so their numbers are down, and uh, perhaps they're seen as uh, vulnerable. For example, so I think the M and A cycle is. Uh, one way out of those concentrated positions. And the other, uh, of course, way is um, you have to work hard and if you've got a big position, you can usually get access to the board or to management to have uh, uh, hopefully constructive dialogue. And if you can get your point of view across or other shareholders' point of view, uh, and we've got a pretty good track record in, um, in business decision-making, uh, we hope we can get those uh, debates going and that will hopefully help the company perform better and um, and even indeed making some hard decisions such as closing off a division that's losing money and the capital is better off deployed elsewhere and management time is better off elsewhere. Those hard decisions that uh, uh, maybe uh, support of large shareholders would encourage the boards and management to to get on and do that sooner than later. Uh, so it's two or three different ways that uh, we address it, but we are fully aware of the, of the risk of concentration. Let's get into talking some specific stocks. Um, one of the companies in your portfolio is Oventus, uh, which produces a sleep apnea product, which uh, puts it in competition with one of Australia's most successful com companies, ResMed. Could you tell us about kind of the similarities or the differences between those two products and why do you, what attracts you to the Oventus product? 
Well, uh, I think it's uh, it's event is really interesting uh, story because the ResMed has been, as you said, a huge success. And what we've learned through ResMed is how big a problem sleep apnea is and other sleep disorders, including snoring and so on. So um, as people are talking more about their health issues in today's world, uh, it's coming out as even a bigger problem. And the numbers are just huge in terms of people's discomfort and also uh, the effect on um, uh, GDP in terms of people's ineffectiveness at work when they don't sleep or haven't had a proper sleep. There's a lot of time off and a lot of underperformance. So it's, it's a huge problem and it's a growing problem as people are becoming more aware. Now, ResMed has captured that market and done brilliantly, but with um, a machine that is very loud, when you put the CPAP over your thing, it's like wearing a mask. Um, it's almost like you're an astronaut, you know, having uh, the confines there. It's very uncomfortable. Um, it, it's, uh, it's, it's hard to lug around. It's a big unit if you're traveling. And um, the thing about Aventus, which is an Australian-based patented technology, it's almost the new type, newest type of technology in an industry that's been doing the same thing for some 20-odd years. So... Uh, as we've spent more and more time on the technology side, we're always looking for something that is a disruptor, something that can make a difference and address still a big market problem. So Aventus is such a company, but being a very small company fighting against a giant and getting market share is a difficult process. So yeah, it requires capital, it requires patience, it requires education, it requires scientific confirmation of the of the effectiveness of um, you know this oral device that they've got, uh, and and that takes a bit of time, and it's been a bit disappointing, and certainly COVID hasn't helped with a lot of the dentists and sleep clinics being actually closed. So they've had to adapt, and they're now uh, teaching people how to do how to get the fit out kind of remotely with a with a kit that can be sent to you and training over a, a laptop or some other mobile device. But we believe that the contrast is so significant relative to the cumbersome CPAP that, um, that it will capture uh, some uh, of the market. And the market is so big that it, this company can be very valuable. So you've also Pat, got to put it into perspective. This company is only valued at something like 20 or 25 million Australian dollars. So uh, what sort of sales and penetration would it take for this company to be a lot more valuable? We think even though it's taken a bit more time than we would have liked, um, we think the risk reward from a company like this is terrific. So uh, and uh, it's going to do um, um, fantastically well for people's health and lifestyle enjoyment. So uh, I love those companies that can potentially have a great financial return and you're actually helping people's well-being. I think that's like the golden ticket if you can do that. And, and if we can be a small part of that and help them on that journey, then I think the team at Thorny will be very proud of that uh, outcome. But it's not there yet, but I think it's a company uh, to watch. More on the turnaround side of things, um, ServiceStream was a company that was I'd say somewhat of a market darling up until about 
two years ago or so. Uh, to start with, could you maybe explain what some of the challenges that Service Stream has faced over the last couple of years have been? And what are some of the changes that you uh, have advocated for or are advocating for uh, in order to turn it around there? Well, if you go back a little bit further than a couple of years, we've been involved in Service Stream for quite a long time. Uh, it was connected to Skilled Engineering originally, if, uh, which was a listed company. And it was uh, a, a service for utility, utility in the uh, uh, telco industry. It was actually laying, laying a lot of the cable and doing the trenches and, the, um, and all of that. So uh, it, was, it was another, if you like, another asset or division within Skilled that wasn't getting enough attention for what it was. So it eventually went on its own journey and became a separate public company but uh, struggled in doing that um, uh, after some good momentum because it went out of its bandwidth and it entered a JV, um, which cost them a lot of money and it was of a scale that they couldn't manage well. So uh, that in itself led to a, a kind of change for them to get back on the right track. Um, they introduced uh, new management. A gentleman who was on the board at the time stepped into the Role. He'd actually sold his business to them. He came in and became a, a much more active director. He recruited a new CEO who's the current CEO. And they went about uh, turning around that big business, exiting the bad contract, taking that on the chin, recapitalized, streamlined the business, went back to their basics. Um, and then they've been a huge beneficiary over the last few years of obviously the NBN rollout and some of the things that's happening in the telco space. Um, people didn't realize that they started expanding also into utilities, smart meters, uh, reading your gas and electricity and those type of things, um, which is a good diversification. But I think with the spend on NBN being so huge, everyone's focus was on that. And there was um, a kind of a view that uh, because that was a perception that that was being badly managed, the, that would be rivers of gold forever. And I think... Uh, it uh, uh, and even though they were running the company well, it was it would then got to be too expensive because the multiples that the market gave it were too high. I think on the basis that that would sort of go on forever, and uh, and they would get uh, uh, you know the, uh, achieving good margins while doing that. So um, I think it went on too high, and in fact we sold out a lot of our position. Um, when the stock not that long ago was about uh, got up to three dollars or through three dollars a share, uh, and we just felt even though fantastic management, even though good contracts and all solid, the uh, uh, valuation had got ahead of itself, and um, so we were quite disciplined in selling quite a lot of stock. Uh, now I think it's come the other way around, as people have said, okay, NBN is finished and the margins are not there as much. Um, it's gone right down. But NBN hasn't finished because there's so much maintenance to still keep going. And they've diversified, as I said previously, in utilities. And then more recently, through this acquisition of Lendlease Services, and that gives them uh, diversity, uh, gives them scale, it gives them plenty of synergies. And if you believe in the management team, which we do, we think they've got one of the be uh, best management teams uh, that are out there, uh, certainly for a company of this size, and a very strong, capable board, of which many of the board members have equity in the business, and actually put more equity in in this recent capital raising, 
I think they will capture those synergies and run that business well. And, and I, I'm, I believe that actually um, the, the market is valuing it too low now relative to the potential that this new business gives to, to them. So we actually participated in the capital raising and we look forward to uh, them producing the results and the market understanding them better that telco is only one part of their business and this is uh, a further diversification for them uh, to balance the business and smooth out the earnings much better going forward and that the management team uh, is capable of delivering a very good outcome. So I think I definitely think this is a stock to watch over the next 6, 12, 18 months. The last 12 months has been um, a rather challenging period for just about everybody. I'm sure um, everyone listening to this now uh, would have experienced some challenges that they never expected to face before. What have you learned about yourself in the last 12 months? Well, I think everyone has been uh, <clears throat> super reflective during this period. So I think uh, I probably have as well. I think the first thing you learn is that um, your health and your well-being, your family are the most important things. <clears throat> Concentrate on them. Uh, business is exciting, dynamic, but not the main game. But within business, obviously, um, there's been so many learnings as well. So um, we see how the wor world is connected, first of all, from the spread of the pandemic, but also from the use of technology like uh, Zoom, that you can connect everyone and you can still relate and you can still converse and you can still conduct business in one form or another. So I think the innovation of uh, uh, human beings, the um, ability to adapt is what we're seeing, and I think it's a pretty powerful uh, message. So um, whilst there's certainly challenges, and um, we touched upon mental health earlier on, and we're seeing that as well as those directly um, um, who, are, who have um, had COVID, but we're seeing the mental health impact on people is huge. And obviously, we've got to do a lot more in supporting each other and helping each other through the crisis time. But but we shouldn't forget about it when the crisis is over. Um, and we've got to do more work on, on uh, using technology to connect to people, to help people, for people's uh, uh, well-being and their families and their carers and that whole ecosystem around that. So I think you have to be, we have to learn to be more compassionate. We have to be more understanding of individuals, workplace environment, businesses who have genuinely out of their control been affected by what the world's thrown at them. I think you have to learn about that. Um, and um, I think that is relevant and I think it will make the world a better place if we can do that and take the learnings uh, from this period uh, forward. For myself, I, uh, personally, I think uh, it's connecting with the people around you, your friends and uh, family. It's keeping yourself safe and healthy. It's uh, identifying what it is that excites you, what, what it is that you want to do in your life. Um, I'm fortunate enough that uh, at this stage in my life, I've probably got enough years of uh, experience and uh, for enough financial uh, wherewithal to pursue what does interest me. Um, 
And it does still interest me to do business. And as I said, all this um, ability to uh, hopefully create some value who, uh, with investors who have supported us by supporting uh, technology and innovation and change that can um, help our planet and businesses function better is very stimulating to me. I mean, I think it's never been a better time, I've been saying lately, to be an entrepreneur because the number of ideas that are out there and the deal flow that we can see, young entrepreneurs um, have identified opportunities, um, they're fearless and they're global in their thinking. It's really an exciting time. So uh, there's no way I'm stepping away from business and being involved at this time. I like it. I think it's fascinating. And if we can take our experience and our wisdom and help some of these young entrepreneurs achieve uh, their dreams, um, that'll be rewarding uh, for us, certainly. So uh, I'm excited by that. Um, more and more philanthropy from my point of view. Um, I get to fo follow Collingwood as a fan rather than uh, having to go to board meetings, uh, which is another way of doing it. And uh, uh, I'm excited about that and going forward. So uh, I, I just think that, um, you know, as I said, we've all had to reflect and we find a way that, uh, and we should not forget our learnings from this year. Um, not that the world is going to normalize anytime soon, but uh, let's all remember to, um, the, the, the important things in life. That brings me to the end of the main part of the interview. And I know we've gone a little bit over time, but if you're willing to hang around for another five or 10 minutes, I've got three favorite questions that I like to ask every one of my guests. Okay, I'll try for it. Hopefully I won't answer the same way as everybody else. <laughs> no, I, I'm sure you won't. Uh, we, we get a nice range of uh, responses on these questions. First of all, could you tell us about a book or a person who's been particularly influential on your investment philosophy? What were some of the lessons you learned from, from the book or the person? Uh, well, I think I, my direct influences, I suppose, on myself were my parents, um, who were refugees uh, from Poland, war-torn European Poland. Um, Robert Holmes, of course, who I mentioned, and Richard Pratt, uh, who I mentioned. All different personalities, but I learned from all of them. Um, I think uh, from Richard Pratt, uh, hard work and focus and to dream big and to think big uh, and surround yourself with good people, smart people, and... Uh, be there every day, 99% um, perspiration, 1% inspiration, he used to say. Uh, in other words, keep working hard and uh, show up to work every day. Holmes Accord, I think, uh, learned from him to identify or seek and search for um, hidden value, I would say, um, and look for something like brands or a technology uh, or real estate, or something that uh, 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 often that happens with overseas subsidiaries of companies and things like that. But keep uh, uh, keep looking and probe deeply to find out what it is. It may not be reflected in the balance sheet at the right valuation. Uh, and he was also a master strategist, and I learned from him a lot of corporate skills and 
and dealing in the market itself and the uh, and uh, you know the option world and so on. From my parents, I think the fundamentals: uh, be honest, uh, have integrity in whatever you're doing, um, uh, surround yourself with uh, people of good values, uh, be charitable. Uh, I think those are some of the things that are core to me, and I've tried to teach them both to my kids uh, to have that as the values of Thorny as a group and to uh, any of the charities that we're involved in. So in terms of broader people who uh, I think in the, in the community, I think uh, from a business point of view, I think I've read everything that Warren Button, Buffett has put out or, or uh, uh, because I'm a value investor at, at, at heart. But also, I think the inspiration from people like uh, Bezos and Musk uh, has got to be telling because, again, that's, uh, you know, nothing is impossible when you look at what they've achieved and what they're striving for uh, in someone's lifetime. So it's incredible what, uh, what, what has happened. And, and, uh, and I think that's just, without looking at the specifics of what they've done or what they say, just the inspiration as to what is possible uh, if you have an open mind to it, is uh, I think what uh, l leads me to, uh, uh, to to keep going, you know, and to keep learning and to keep uh, teaching uh, uh, from my end as well. I mean, I like to uh, pass on the limited amount that I know to others and see if I can help them. The real heroes to me and champions are some of those people that I mentioned that you come across in the... Um, philanthropy world and the charitable not-for-profit world. Um, so, um, you know, that lady in uh, Nepal that was is building um, initiatives through uh, bricks to help in the rebuilding of the 800,000 houses that were lost. Uh, last night I was talking to a, a winner of our Wiselitz Global Citizen Prize, uh, a young man uh, in uh, Nigeria who's uh, dealing uh, by distributing birthing kits and uh, mobile devices to remote villages where people can watch an instructional video about childbirth uh, to address the uh, tragic 2,300 childbirths a day, he told me, is happening in the country of Nigeria. So those people at the coalface who are really changing and helping people's lives, those are, to me, the inspiration and the influences and and the champions, and I just want to expose as many of them that I can to my family and friends, and to let the people at Thorny know and the companies we're investing in that the success that we can have, that we can pass through to those people is um, terrific. So um, I don't know if that answers the question, I probably got uh, digressed a bit. That's okay, that's not a problem at all. Could you tell us about one of your biggest gains or losses? What were the most valuable lessons that you took from the experience? I think, as you said, in the early days, we had some terrific wins uh, with companies. Uh, one that stands out for us um, uh, is a company called Monodelphus, which is a mining services company out of uh, Perth in Western Australia. I think I was the first kind of corporate to visit uh, John Rubino, who was the CEO and who was speaking in broken English, a half Italian and just the most passionate, dedicated, smart man. Uh, 
who's built a company that employs something like six or 7,000 people today. I think when I saw them, they had 30 or 50 people, uh, multi-billion dollar turnover company. And uh, uh, we were an investor for a long time in them. And one lesson that came out of that is don't sell your winners too quickly. If there's a great management team, if there's a good story, a good product, good uh, service they're offering, if they've got the ability to grow and scale up, uh, it's very hard to find a great management team like I mentioned in Service Stream. So you don't want to give up on them, let them go on their journey and piggyback along with them. Sure, have dialogue. Sure, watch out if the share price gets a little bit ahead of itself, take some off the table. But if it dips down, certainly buy back into those companies because you know they're going to deliver operating results uh, uh, on behalf of shareholders. So that's a good example. Um, Webjet was an early tech investment that we made that really opened our eyes to efficiencies of platforms and uh, connectivity. So... Uh, I think we invested originally in Webjet around maybe 14 or 16 or 18 cents and uh, they went on to uh, get to, uh, I think they're still uh, $3, but before they split, they got up to about $10 or something like that. So that was a massive winner for us. Uh, Hub is another company that's been a huge winner for us um, where we're an activist in and um, we still own, I think, about 8% of that company. So that's been a huge win for us. More recently, um, in the fintech space, we've had a very big wins in Afterpay and uh, also in uh, Zip, uh, which is, which is uh, looking very prospective as well. Well, I have one more question for you, but before I ask it, I always like to insert a little bit of a disclaimer. Don't try this at home. We're not actually suggesting that anybody goes out there puts all of their money in a single stock and forgets about it for five years. This is supposed to be a bit of an exercise in long-term thinking and hopefully a little bit of fun. So with that being said, if markets were going to close for the next five years, starting from tomorrow, and you could only own shares in one company, what would it be? <laughs> that's, a, that's a tricky one. and I'm sure I'll be held accountable for this uh, by many people. Um, look, I think I would do something that uh, uh, has a technology that could um, change and revolutionize something and let that technology play out, I suppose. So I would look for a company with that kind of characteristic. Maybe it's a life sciences company uh, like an Imugene or a Mesoblast that um, uh, if, they, if they get to the point of a particular drug that uh, that could be a game changer um, uh, Imogene uh, in the uh, cancer space and uh, mesoblast in the stem cell uh, space with uh, plenty of applications. But I think off the top of my head, there's one company which we've got in um, Thorny Technologies, as well as which we own in the uh, private company uh, called Calix, uh, C-A-L-I-X, its symbol is C-X-L. Um, it's had quite a nice movement already from a very small base, but this is a company which has got uh, many patents and it's uh, dealing with industrial solutions across many industries. Uh, probably the lead area they're dealing with is in cement um, and they're tackling it in a way that leads to much more sustainability, 
much less carbon emission in the industrial process. So it's an industrial solution to achieve not only efficiency for the, uh, the, the cost of the product being produced, but in particular, the real cost of the product and real cost uh, for all of us, which is in, uh, in how it deals with uh, climate change, which is obviously a, a massive thematic and its impact on climate change, particularly through emissions and uh, a carbon capture and things like that. So uh, they're um, focusing on what we're calling green cement and they've been supported uh, with some of the largest cement companies in the world uh, of you know, uh, investing in pilot plants with them and scaling up for full production. But their application is wider than just cement. It's in aquaculture, it's in... Um, it's in uh, um, uh, an array of uh, industrial solutions because they've got a unique process of, uh, of how they go about it. It's magnesium based, it goes through their own kind of burner and it captures uh, CO2 as well. So I think, uh, and a very smart, capable um, management team who are very heavily invested in the equity of the company as well. So I think this company has got uh, star potential uh, it could have many, as I said, applications. Each one has got big market shares. It could lead to spin-offs of the technology or licensing of the technology. But I think uh, it's a company that we certainly believe in. Uh, we like them. We're invested in them. We're going to stay with them. Sounds fascinating. Concrete such a, a large uh, producer of emissions. That would be amazing if, you, if we could uh, reduce those. Well, Alex... Thanks for taking the time to chat to me today. Uh, I know it's a bit of a logistical challenge during lockdowns, but I appreciate you taking the time out of your day. Um, and thanks for sharing your views. Thanks very much. Good to chat and look forward to doing it another time. Well, that's the end of the show. If you made it this far, I hope that means you enjoyed it. So please follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Or if you're a live wire reader, give this wire a like. Thanks for tuning in.